episode 26 with former chairman of the Black Panther Party, Elaine Brown. Welcome to the Institute of Black Imagination. I'm your host, Dario Calmis, an artist, writer, brand consultant, and generally curious fellow. And each week we bring you a conversation from the pool of black genius to inspire, engage, and help you unleash your own imagination. Today's episode is with former chairman and the first and only woman to lead the Black Panther Party, Sister Elaine Brown. Elaine is an activist, writer, speaker, and songwriter known for her sharp wit and sheer intellectual veracity. But we all began somewhere, and Elaine is no exception. Hailing from the streets of North Philadelphia, Elaine had a bit of trouble finding herself early on. Some would call it an identity crisis. Her single mother, wanting to create a better life for her daughter, sent her to predominantly white schools. But once back home, Elaine found herself amongst the struggling denizens of a segregated North Philadelphia, allowing Elaine the experience, but not yet the words, of what it meant to be black in America. An accomplished musician, Elaine fled to Los Angeles to pursue songwriting, but found herself at a Black Panther rally within days of the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King, despondent with the state of affairs in the country. Making her way up the ranks of the Black Panther Party, it was actually her songwriting that got her noticed by David Hilliard, the party's chief of staff, who made her song The Meeting from her debut album Seize the Time, the party's official anthem. Her songs were also noticed by the party's Minister of Defense, Huey P. Newton, who placed Elaine at the top of the party's leadership, replacing Bobby Seale, when Newton fled to Cuba in the 1970s to escape persecution. While with the Panthers, Elaine was editor of its newspaper and oversaw many of the initiatives that the party is known for, like its Free Breakfast for Children's program and its Free Busing to Prisons program, with prison reform becoming a lifelong pursuit for her. Since formally leaving the party, Elaine has made activism, education, and revolution her life's work. She's the author of two books, A Taste of Power, her memoir, and The Condemnation of Little B, a nonfiction book charting the persecution of young Michael Lewis, a 14-year-old sentenced to life in prison for a crime Elaine believes he did not commit. After founding multiple nonprofits rooting in social justice, now at 78, Elaine is CEO of Oakland and the World Enterprises, a nonprofit dedicating to launching and sustaining for profit businesses for cooperative ownership by the formerly incarcerated and others facing monumental social barriers to economic survival. Their multi million dollar affordable housing complex in Oakland is slated to break ground in late 2021, and her album, Seize the Time, was just re released on Black Forum Records, a division of Motown. In this episode, Elaine and I discuss her bifurcated childhood in 1950s North Philadelphia, what it means to be seen for the first time, the way language shapes our sense of self, how the Black Panther Party used fashion and aesthetics as a signaling device, and so, so, so much more. This episode is a history lesson, a sketch comedy, and a manual on the vicissitudes that accompany a life of service and continual self-discovery. I hope you're sitting down somewhere where no one can see the faces you're about to make as you listen to this incredible conversation. 
It's with gratitude we present you none other than the indefatigable Elaine Brown. Sister Elaine Brown, welcome to the Institute of Black Imagination. And before I say anything else, I would love to say all power to the people. (laughs) That's our common uh, jumping off point between you and me, as well as just in general, uh, we always say in the Black Panther Party and those of us who who remain committed to those principles, we'd like to say all power to the people because in the end of the day, uh, that's where the power is, and uh, it's just a matter of the people organizing to understand it. How do you define power? Well, we said in the party, our first, our first point of our 10-point platform and program said we want freedom, power to determine the destinies of our Black communities. And so to determine your destiny, uh, clearly there are things that we can't control, as you know, you learn from all kinds of maxims and religious ideas that we're not in control of everything. This was very mm. shocking, shocking to me to find that I'm not in control of probably 90% of what you know life is. Uh, you know, the sun coming up or being on the being alive, you know, whatever life is, uh, not in control of all the vicissitudes of nature itself, forgetting all the other stuff, and then all the things, the machinations of other human beings and all the things that we're dealing with. So we're not in control of that stuff in general. But there are things that we uh, should be able to be uh, self-determining. And that is to say, for example, enjoying the fruits of our labor. Um, if we have, uh, uh, if we don't have enough food to eat, and there is food to eat, then we're not in control or don't have power over our own lives because we don't have enough food to eat. So we are powerless. If you don't have any money in America, you can kiss your ass goodbye <laughs> in terms of food, in terms of healthcare in terms of housing, in terms of education, in terms of everything. In other words, the ticket to even having the most basic needs of your human life being met is money. And if you don't have any money, uh, it's, it's the death penalty. Mm. So um, to have power over those things that affect your life and that you can have some power over like food, like healthcare, like um, education, um, these things are available. They're just not available to certain populations. And in mm. the United States, there's a wealth disparity, as we know, where you have, you know, the, literally the top one percent or less of the of the country owning seventy percent, eighty percent of the wealth. I mean, that doesn't make sense. And then the bottom uh, control a little piece. So the so, so-called middle class is really at the lower end of the wealth spectrum. For Black people, we don't have, we have a high incarceration rate. We're not even in control of the justice system that affects us. Mm. Uh, We're not in control of anything. So power to the people means that uh, two things. It means that people themselves, as Mao Zedong would have said, said, and we would quote that, uh, you know, um, the people and the people alone are the makers of the revolution. In other words, it's not some little tiny group. It is the masses of people that will ultimately make the change that has to be made in order structural change. But in order for us to have a decent life in America as black people, we have to have 
all the things that we need just to survive and to live. And if we're beset by police, uh, you know, police are locking us up and we are poor, we don't have decent housing, we don't have any money, we have no wealth, we don't own or control anything, we have no power. So the power over our lives is to control those things that affect our ability to even live. Mm. <laughs> well, I could just open the doors of the church at this point. Like, <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> well, it's true. Well, I mean, everybody knows that. What do you want? You know, I want a mm-hmm. better house. You could ask anybody. What do yeah. you want? You know, I want. Uh, I would like to. You know, have some people are not looking to have a mansion and you know have a Rolls Royce or something. Although you know, once you see these things, you 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 could create a desire for them, but. Um, fundamental things. I mean, people working for, uh, I just read an article, people working for minimum wage, uh, there is no affordable housing for them in the United States of America, period. That's it. There's no housing that you can afford to live in in the United States if you are working for minimum wage. That's amazing when you think about it. So that means you have to work two jobs or three jobs or two and a half or some kind of way or crowd up in one, you know, 12 people in one bedroom or whatever it is, uh, which puts you in jeopardy for a variety of things, including your health. Um, You know, anytime you crowd people up, it's going to be conflict, you know, so forth. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You you mentioned, you mentioned a couple of things um, in, in your opening monologue on power, which I love. It was so rich. Like, you know, you miss You mentioned Mao Mao Tongue. Am I pronouncing that right? Right, Mao. It's Zedong, right? They say Z with a Z, like it sounds like a Z. Z e d o n g is the pronunciation, as I understand it. Yeah, and so, you know, outside of just you know, American writers and other other revolutionaries, like you and the other members of the party, and just people at that time were were reading um, revolutionary tracks from multiple cultures. Like, what other what other cultures, what other writers, what other leaders were you all listening to outside of just the black revolutionary culture in America? Right. Well, there really wasn't much of a, uh, there wasn't much here. Uh, I mean, you had writers, but you didn't have necessarily, um, you know, a revolutionary. So you had, you know, great writers like James Baldwin and, you know, James Baldwin was uh, someone we absolutely loved. Uh, there's lots of good pictures of James Baldwin, Huey Newton, by the way. Uh, you know, Richard Wright, what have you. Uh, at the same time, though, you had in, in, uh, in Tanzania, you had in Kruma, you had, I mean, in Kruma in Ghana, and you had uh, Nayeri in Tanzania, and, and you had uh, revolutionary leaders in uh, African liberation struggles that we studied and, and coalesced with, um, you know, uh, Samora Machel in, uh, in Mozambique, uh, who was a leader of, of uh, Frelimo. So for Robert Mugabe in, Zan- in, in uh, Zimbabwe, uh, so forth and so on. So we read a lot of African, the thoughts of African leaders at that time, there were all of these people breaking away from their colon- from the yoke of colonialism, European colonialism. And then of course, we, we were very much involved in, in Maoist thought. And we read what we call the Little Red Book. We were reading uh, Che Guevara, we were reading and, and, and so forth. So um, the question was the whole question. And then we also read other philosophies, Nietzsche. I mean, Huey was big on reading everything. Um, some of the people in the Black Panther Party uh, didn't want to study some of these other philosophies. So Huey actually did a book with um, a psycho- psychologist or uh, named uh, 
uh, Eric Erickson, who probably is the third most important contributor to, you know, questions about the psychology of human beings uh, after, mm. Freud, after Freud and after Jung uh, comes Eric Erickson, Huey Newton. Here's this guy, Huey Newton and, and Eric Erickson did a book together called In Search of Common Ground, uh, you know, analyzing, you know, what are the issues that face human beings and, and what controls our behavior and how do we behave? So we, we tried to look at everything that would um, lead us to how to have an environment in which um, we could live our lives as in a, in a decent way, that we could have the life we wanted. What is the construct uh, of the society that we live in? How do we organize it? And as we find ourselves living in the United States, which is sing singularly the most powerful uh, uh, society or country in the world, uh, both militarily and, and, and economically, um, then how do we how do we come from being slaves in this country to being free people? And that, mm -hmm. that's a challenge that nobody has ever really been able to come up with a concrete answer. So we attempted to do that by looking at what other people were doing around the world to throw off uh, all other forms of oppression. Yeah, I, I, I love that. And thank you for, for going through that list. I bring it up because I think about just the plurality of existence that we have to, you know, understand and consume and understand that, you know, although geographically um, we are tied to these United States and we are conditioned around uh, the frameworks that we've been born into, um, but there are other ways of being, there are other modalities. And by discovering those modalities, it helps you better understand where you are. And you understand that this fight for liberation is not just tied to the black experience in America, but it's happening around the world. I mean, even um, this podcast, the Institute of Black Imagination is heavily based on uh, Paulo Freire uh, from Brazil um, and his book, Pedagogy of the Oppressed and the ways in which he used it as a Marxist tome to teach rural Brazilians you know, how to read. In, in it, he says that the burden of liberation is actually on the oppressed, not the oppressor, because only the strength right. built by being oppressed do you have the power to liberate all of us. And, and I love that he even divided the world into the oppressed and the oppressor because it takes out these other kind of identification but that's how labels. We, yeah, that was exactly how, the, you, the, how we would see it too. But <laughs> because you can align yourself with the oppressor, even though you may be uh, you know, Clarence Thomas, for example, oh. using an extreme example, because there are many others, but you can be aligned with the very oppressors of your own people. And you can, and so even though you, you don't have the power to really be the oppressor, um, you can be aligned with the oppressor. So it is, you know, people could think it's an extreme thing to think in terms of, you know, black or white or good or bad or whatever. But in the end of the day, um, the goal is to, uh, to to have people to have what we need and what we want. Uh, uh, you know, the goal is, uh, we, we were Marxist-Leninists, and so, of course, we studied, we were Marxists, and somebody said to Huey one time, well, you know, Marx was a racist, and Huey said, probably so, but he wasn't a Marxist, just like Jesus wasn't a Christian. So we're going to look at what he has to say and not worry about everything else about him because the class structure and the social constructs coming out of industrialization at the time or the transition from it. I mean, Marx did not talk about or recognize that 
uh, we Blacks uh, were the, represented the real intersection between class and so-called race because there wasn't anybody else that was a slave in America but African people. You know, whatever little uh, indentured Irish servants there were, you know, they, they were, we were owned and controlled completely for 250 years as a property of uh, other people. So we had no human attributes that we could claim at, in, in America. And this is so extreme that you can almost not find another example where a whole people were denied every single vestige of our humanity. And Marx missed the mark on that because what he thought is that once slavery was ended, um, that somehow we would just be blended into the labor movement or something like that. And we were excluded by race and kept in, a, in poverty um, for, for forever. And so he, he didn't get that and whatever the criticisms are, but the point was, as you start out saying, to really read and understand what people are thinking, how people, how could we do this? What could we do? But our goal was always to not be oppressed. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And to you bring free. up- and 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 we're we're gonna get, we're gonna get to these questions that I said. Okay, I'm sorry. No, no, no. I love this is this is it. Like I knew that I, I was just excited for this conversation. I'm just letting you know. I I am. I'm. You and your people know. We're gonna get to the questions, but you you know you bring up something really amazing, particularly about Karl Marx and the ways in which you know on one end he could be considered maybe you know racist or out of touch. And yet his words and the actions are something still worth listening to, right? Like there's still gold in them, Thar Hills. And so I think in this age of like cancel culture where someone says something that's a bit untoward or has maybe done something terrible in the past, but yet yet they're not wholly bad, right? How how can we create nuance? How can we kind of navigate these spaces moving forward when, I mean, there are things that I've said and done, I'm sure I would not want blasted out into the world, but I still believe I'm a good person, right? And I'm, I'm sure right. you can say the well, same. Think, and so yeah. how do we develop a, a culture of nuanced understanding of the lived experience? Well, I don't, I don't even know if it has to be that nuance. We can use the example in our case of Martin Luther King. And so you had J. Edgar Hoover. We don't want to talk about J. Edgar Hoover as an individual. <laughs> Uh, but we had J. Edgar Hoover, um, who was using um, sexual, um, sexual references to try to undermine Dr. King's um, significance and, and to, to, uh, to demonize him, saying he was uh, with a lot of women and so forth and so on. And so you end up with people who, for example, uh, several books in which uh, one guy, I, I don't want to name the, the guy because I don't want to be sidetracked. Uh, but, you know, one of these so-called black public intellectuals, whatever that means, uh, who, who wrote a book, one of these, let's reconsider, one of these reconsider books, the revisiting books, you know, revisiting, reconsidering Martin Luther King. And here's a student asking me, well, you know, I've, I've read that Dr. King was sleeping with a white woman the night before he was killed. So that's a kind of an example of what you're saying. So now what should we do? Just say, well, that's it for Dr. King, you know what I'm saying? So I said, well, first of all, as we used to say in the hood, unless you saw it happening, and this is the clean version for, your, for you, uh, <laughs> unless you saw it, uh, you don't have anything to say about it, you know? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So uh, since I know you weren't there, um, what is it 
how do you, what is the basis for your making that statement? Mm-hmm, uh, what, mm-hmm. how, what do you have some evidence or proof of this? Where you get, goes to the book, looks at the footnote, footnote is FBI file. Now you here is a black man, right? An intellectual professor writing a book, making reference to Dr. King, knowing this will be sensationalistic to people when they read it, quoting J. Edgar Hoover that Dr. King was with a white woman. I said, well, here's the other part. What about this bothers you? Is it that the woman was white? That it wasn't the wife? Or or what is it? It wasn't enough to give his whole life and be murdered the next morning. But you now are going to give you an irrelevant human being in this scenario. And you and the professor I never heard of. And the person who wrote the book that I've never heard of. You are going to now... Uh, as you say, cancel culture, I had never heard that, but I, I get what you mean. Uh, you now decided that Dr. King has no more value. It wasn't enough to give his whole life to our struggle, to be shot mm. in the throat by the FBI. You're going to quote the FBI. So so I don't have anything else to say to you other than that um, you're not qualified to comment. We used to say, um, you know, I, this could have been a Maoist phrase, but in any case, Uh, no investigation, no right to speak. So I Mm. say this to people all the time because I'm old enough and tough enough to say it. I'm like, you haven't even earned the right to give me your opinion. No, you do not have. You have an opinion, I'm not interested. You haven't read anything, you don't know anything. What I mean, you're getting information from Instagram or Facebook or whatever it is. Uh, You're living in hashtag land or whatever you're doing. Please don't say anything because you have nothing to say. So I tend to just, tell people blankly, and as much as I can, I'm not interested in what you just said. And they get mad when that's good because now we can talk about what you don't know. But we do have to make sure that people understand or that we understand what is it that we wanna say about, now we could say if Dr. King was a philanderer, but I mean, everybody in the movement at that time was screwing everybody. I don't know what he did, but I can tell you that (laughs) We, were, we came up in the time of sex, drugs, and rock and roll. I mean, let's face facts. That was the, it wasn't just white people, it was everybody. And so everybody was ripping off their bras and not using condoms. Amazing, we're alive even really from that period. Uh, I can't even tell you, uh, you know, my daughter was very shocked by uh, the number of people I mentioned in my book that I had had sex with and she, uh, told her husband that and he said look she was young blah blah and I'm like gee I didn't even know each of those people might have been a category more than a (laughs) (laughs) so you know the point was so now do we have a Puritan moral thing that we're dealing with are we dealing with Puritan morals and is that what's defining now whether or not I'm a good person yeah we haven't we haven't defined uh, what makes us a good we've allowed this a fake European Puritan uh, a culture while these people go in here just murdering native people, but they're talking about, you know, they don't want to have sex or <laughs> whatever it is. So your question is, you know, what's our value uh, system? And, and you're right. Uh, now, on the other hand, um, people do need to be criticized for doing stuff that overcomes or overwhelms everything else that they ever did. Mm. You know, you're going to go out here and rape a child or something. Well, I'm sorry. That kind of eliminates all your good, whatever good you ever thought you did. That's the end of that conversation. Um, you know what I mean? So, I mean, I think we have to make that decision. 
But right now we're in a culture of racism and capitalism that's so overwhelming, it's hard to find any moral center mm. for any of us. So that's why we're now starting to divide ourselves according to uh, gender differences, sexual orientation, pronouns. And we have just forgotten about, you know, it's like, if you are poor, the last thing you're worried about is your gender identity, believe me. You're trying to figure out how you'll get some food today. Yeah. And you're not worried about, you know, um, you're not going to worry about these kind of other things that you have the luxury to worry about when you do have food or a place to live. And, you know, as I also like to tell black people that we, we don't align ourselves with black people, but we start dividing ourselves up into these other categories that can be aligned easily with uh, our oppressor, you know, uh, I believe uh, the head of the army, at least under Trump, was a gay man. So now what, you want to identify him as like you're part of the gay movement because, uh, and he's out there killing everybody around the world. And you don't mind that because he's gay and you want to identify with gay as opposed to with, are you the oppressor of other people who might also, by the way, be gay? I don't know what's going on in Afghanistan. I don't know what's going on in in South Africa or whatever. I don't know what these people's sexual orientation is, but I know that you've got your foot on everybody's neck. So the point is where, where do we exist? And in this country you are overwhelmed with um, the values of a ruthless um, construct called capitalism that requires the exploitation of other people. For me to make money, I've got to exploit you. I got to mm -hmm. make sure you don't make money. I got to steal from you and uh, kill you even mm -hmm. in order for me to make money. So we, we have to make a decision about what are our values. And it's difficult because we're overwhelmed by uh, U.S. Uh, capitalist uh, values and racist values so that we know that beauty is white in America. We are constantly struggling just to not be ugly. You know what mm. I mean? Mm. We black people. And um, so the answer is, I don't know, obviously, but I, I, I know that your point is correct. We have to find our own set of values and not, mm -hmm. you know, um, allow anybody to say, well, Dr. King slept with a white woman. So therefore he's diminished and mm -hmm. not, not be elevated mm -hmm. in the way that he has been, you know what I'm saying? That's kind of. Yeah, terrible. no, it's no, it's no, it's interesting. And even, even when you bring up, you know, just different identities, particularly as it pertains to like gender or, you know, sexual orientation. And I, and, and when I listen to it, I can, I can already uh, assume that people may be offended by some of those statements. Um, but I think what actually really ties it together and what, 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 what's being really said is really knowing what's the North star. What is your North star? Where are your values? Uh, where do you align yourself? But knowing that behind that, being able to fully express yourself right. without oppression gives you the power and the agency to actually go after and bring about that very deliverance, that service, that, you know, um, you know, the release of oppression. But there is, but one does have to, uh, discover their truest version of themselves in order to even walk out of the door, even if you are, you know, maybe in a homeless shelter or, um, 
you know, you don't have everything that you need. At the at the very core, the freedom that we all desire is the freedom to rest within ourselves outside of whatever situation we find ourselves well, in. You know, I, I, I've taken some hits from people who want to say, you know, well, I um, I want to identify uh, myself as they. Let's just use the pronoun issue uh, because I like to go straight to the point. And um, this is not about your little individual life because you're not oppressed because your identity, who is defining you as he, she, or they, or whatever it is that you want to be defined as. What is it that you, who is it that you are talking to in the first place? When you say Black Lives Matter, you're talking to me. I've always thought Black Lives Matter, even in my most ignorant moments. Uh, so who are you speaking to? Who is it that you want to value you when you say, I want you to recognize me, me, I want you, not I think this about me, but I mm -hmm. want you to recognize this because you have mm. power over me. So you're really talking to white people if you're black or if you're gay, you're talking to so-called straight people, whatever, you know, all those categories are. And, and I, mm. I want to make I want to make note that, you know, Huey Newton in 1970 and anybody involved in gay liberation, not pride, which is a big difference, big difference. The gay liberation movement, as it evolved from theoretically from Stonewall in New York, one year after Stonewall, the Black Panther Party, Huey Newton issued a statement in 1970 uh, that said that gay liberation was a part of the struggle of black liberation. So the, to, to not understand the intersection and the connectedness of these things and think you just, I'm just going to be they, and I'm only identifying with people that are they, and you miss the issue of 250 years of slavery, something wrong with you because you want to have your little identity in a racist world. You're all right with racism as long as I can be me and I can all that, you know, me, me, me too, I, 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 because that's the capitalist culture to teach you that you're more important as an individual than uh, any of your group. That's how people end up saying stuff like, I have a right not to wear a mask or whatever the dumb stuff people are saying. So when you think your personal identity is more important than what is happening to your people, then I'm not interested in you. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I don't give a shit who you're sleeping with. And as uh, you know, we got uh, our education about quote unquote gay liberation from ironically, Jean Genet. Jean Genet, the great French playwright yeah. was in the US, came to the, uh, wanted to do an article about the Black Panthers, went to our office in Harlem and and um, I mean, the Black Panthers, these are all these brothers and more brothers than, than sisters, but uh, you know, that's another conversation. And they were like, well, why are we here with this? This is the clean version with this gay man, okay? White boy at that. And um, Jean Genet stayed in our Harlem office. And when he went to sleep on a couch that they let him have, he put on a, like a pink gown. Yes, he did and told them, do you want me to, you call me faggot, you want me to call you nigger? Well, of course that, 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 that shot everybody crazy. And so uh, David Hilliard, then chief of staff of the party, told Huey Newton about this and Huey issued this statement about um, gay liberation. But we always said those who were organizing around revolutionary principles those who are organizing around revolutionary principles, not around their own individual identities. Now on the 50th anniversary of the Black Panther Party, it, um, uh, 
uh, in 2016 of the founding of the party, I rode at the top of the gay pride parade float of the blacks because they put a panther there because we were the only uh, people, the only black organization that recognized the nexus between uh, gay liberation and black liberation. But we were not talking about how you can have the right to wear sequins or something. Who cares? You know, you just, you, you know, that's what you want to do, fine, who cares? But you didn't have any of that going on for 250 years. Anybody know what your sexuality was if you didn't get out there and start in the fourth quarter and start chopping some cotton? And so we're not dealing with that. And so people want to get angry about my uh, questioning of their personal little identity, their little lives, and they don't care about walking by a homeless encampment and don't think, okay, not can I give these people my leftover food, but what am I going to do systemically? Can I do anything to make life unoppressive for all the rest of the people? I'm only thinking about me. I'm happy with me. It's just about me. You know? So mm -hmm. that's part of what I'm saying is that we have yeah. to get back to the sense of the collective of our, of our common interests. What is serving our common interests? Is it okay with me to have my identity the way I want it in this racist and capitalist society <clears throat> and be okay with people being hungry? And is that okay with me? I'm happy now that I got my identity and I feel good about me but I don't care about what you're going through. And I think it's all right for you to be hungry. And I think it's all right for you not to have health care. No, we can't be like that. And that would be what the Black Panther Party. So we aligned ourselves with every oppressed group. And one of those groups was, uh, as Huey said at that time, the homosexual may be the most oppressed person in America. Sister Brown, <laughs> I love this but. You know, what I love most is like at the root of it, it actually goes back to what you said earlier when you spoke about um, choices and, you know, realizing that we really don't have control over a lot of things that happen in our lives. Um, but underneath this, I, this like identity, right, like this I is the actual design of our language, right? The ways in which the English language shapes the way we view the world, right? If, if you study other languages, you understand that not all languages have sentence structures that allow for a subject to always then act a verb on an object, right? And so by that very structure, by that very design framework, you are always separating yourself from the other and there always is an other that you're always acting upon or against for the purposes of whatever the verb allows for, right? Which actually is a design framework which has completely shifted the way in which we even view the world, including ourselves in the world. And so this idea of the I, this idea of identity is actually baked into the way we even speak to each other, the way in which wow. we form our thoughts. And so not only are we fighting against some ideological concept of identity versus the collective, we're actually fighting against spells, right? We're actually fighting against language, um, that we all grow up with, um, that we all speak, at least in this country. But again, you know, I'm, you know, studying French and I'm studying these other languages, you know, and there, there are many times where the sentence structure actually centers the other, right? Like for, for instance, and then we'll get, get back <laughs> to the podcast. Like when I say like, 
I miss you, to say I miss you in French, you say tu me manques, meaning that you lack me. That's actually what you say. So when you are reaching out to another to say I miss you in English, you still center yourself first. In right. French, it's actually the other, right? It's you. You lack me. You, right. you are first in this. And so it's just the ways in which we understand uh, the world that we're not even thinking about. We're not even questioning. Um, but the sense of the self being first is actually baked in as a design element of the English language and other languages as well. Um, I think that's, uh, I think, let me just comment on that really quickly. I yeah. think you're, that's a great observation. And the problem is this, if you had the power to control your language, then we might re-examine all of this, but we can't re-examine like Ms. versus Miss and Mrs. Remember that? Uh, you know, when we went yeah, to the yeah, moment yeah. of, I want to be men, I, I don't want to be identified as somebody's wife. I want to be identified as, in other words, if I'm missed, then that means I don't have a husband. And so that sort of gives me another definition. But it did not change the status of Black women in America. You follow me? <laughs> we remain poor and irrelevant. We remain, the only reason we're looking at the Me Too movement is because these white women in Hollywood have a problem suddenly uh, that they've been pandering to for years, but now they have a problem. Nobody, black women don't even get raped because we're whores anyway. You understand what I mean? So Ms. and Miss and Mrs. did not change the fundamental fact that black women in the world are the poorest people in the world. We are the, we are the poorest people in the world talking about the whole diaspora. We are, you know, without a husband, without money, without all that. And then of course, in, in, and, and on the continent of Africa, it's ridiculous. They're, they're, that level of poverty is hard to even reckon with. So what difference did it make at this point? But if we were in control of our lives in terms of the way we, uh, you know, our, our food and our clothing and our housing and all the things that we need in the, in the society, then we could start to discuss how we will refer to each other, mm -hmm. how we will see mm -hmm. each other in a different paradigm, but we're not in a different paradigm. We're in a paradigm of the English mm -hmm. because this is an English colony started out, right? So naturally their culture, their, their whole thing, white is beautiful, you know, and not to count superior and supreme and whatever else it is, we're fighting that every day culturally. We're fighting yeah. all these things, but these are the result of the people who have the guns. Do you remember when there was a recent state, well, there are many, but uh, recently the so-called joint head of the Joint Chiefs of Staff uh, under Trump made a public comment about the January 6th, you know, white boy, white boy, white mm -hmm, boy conflict mm -hmm. between themselves. You know, so. uh -huh. <laughs> uh, and, and said, he says, well, if we thought we were ready because we were not going to allow these people to take up because after all, we're the men with the guns, he said. Now, that's what I like. Just cut to the chase. That's how you got here. You killed the, you killed the native people. It wasn't about no blankets and TB and whatever else. It was about some guns and, gun, you know, like after Columbus killed all the Arawak and, you know, in that period of time, when you get to the 1600s, these people came in here from England and just wipe out the native people in numbers that were phenomenal with the gun. This wasn't <laughs> trickery, this was the gun. Then you go and you start stealing slaves from the Portuguese to bring in here. The first wave of slaves were stolen off of a Portuguese slave ship. You know, it's that kind of thing. So these are some barbaric people. 
And this barbarism has now been institutionalized and inculcated so that the very language, as you say, reflects these kind of, uh, uh, this, this odd uh, thing about me. And why is it odd? Because this pandemic, if nothing else, has shown even, the, even somebody who can't see or think at all that we, can't, we are absolutely connected, we human mm -hmm, beings. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that we have a duty to each other, whether we care, whether we recognize it or not. And it's important for us to realize that all of us really have to have life because we can all be affected when the other one is not. So the other is critical to all of us. We are, much as I can't stand half these people, I'm stuck with you walking around with your goddamn coronavirus, not wanting to wear a mask. So I have to make a decision about how I live. And we are all, and, and lastly, I've, this is something I've said very often, you know, when you get in a car to drive somewhere and get on a freeway or something, and I know New Yorkers don't drive that much, <laughs> why? Um, <laughs> it's too ridiculous. Uh, but when you get in your car, you have to hope that everybody who's in a car is going to basically accept the rules of the road, yep. not go buck crazy today not just be high and insane, not want to commit suicide, not want to shoot you because uh, you were driving too slow. All that is dependent. The road is okay. Uh, not counting things like, you know, the, the bridge collapse, the earthquake, the flood and stuff that are really out of all of our control, you know, something like that. But just, you have to hope that everybody agrees to behave on the road. You have to hope that. And so you are dependent on every single person that got in a car where you are. Mm -hmm. that get on a plane. You got to hope the pilot really paid attention to all the stuff. You got to get a doctor. You hope that he didn't miss that one day when he should have understood how to take that cataract out. Uh. You, know, so you are dependent, whether you want to be or not, on every single person in the world. Yeah. And the wind is blowing in Africa and the butterflies, you know, all those systems and climates and all that is interdependent. You cannot be an individual. You might want to be, but it, it, is, it is against nature for you to be talking about. So your language point is really critical and very interesting because even that is a reflection of this uh, anti-human kind of thinking that it is all about me and I don't care about you. Mm hmm. You know, and, and kind of circling back to your origins, you know, back in, in Philly, um, you know, who was the first person to bet on you? Uh, well, um, I don't think anybody did. Um, you know, I, I think it's an interesting question. Of course, you have, you know, high, these are highly intellectual questions. <laughs> uh, but, you know, as I as I grew up, um, um, my mother would tell me every day, you're the most beautiful girl in the world. It's real hard to be the most beautiful girl in the world and be perfect. Uh, I think I want to say Anna Quinlan or someone who was a New York Times writer, some, a writer like Anna Quinlan wrote a book about how hard it was to be perfect. Because once somebody identifies you as perfect, uh, then any flaw means you're just, you, you go from, you know, the top, then you're, you're dead, you're nothing anymore. And I've lived, a, I lived my life like that as a child. And so, um, but there were plenty of other, there were other problems with that. So my mother didn't encourage me to do anything. 
Uh, but she takes credit or took credit for sending me to these all white, this all white school from day one, where I immediately saw that there was a difference between where I lived and where these white people lived. And that they were all, all the kids that I went to elementary school with were Jewish. And I thought of them as being rich, by the way. Um, although they said they weren't rich, they were middle class, you know, whatever that is. But for me, they were rich. And I, when I went to one girl's house the first time I was in like second grade and I saw that they had uh, bright lights, they had carpeting and I'd never seen, they had, this one girl had a refrigerator. I never saw a refrigerator. And I was living in Philadelphia. I wasn't in living in rural Hoobie Boo, Alabama. I was living in Philadelphia. <laughs> so I recognized that I was poor and I wanted to be them. So the first thing I recognized is that the people that had something I wanted were white mm. and the people who were living bad were black. And so I didn't want to be the black ones. I wanted to be the white ones. It was very hard for me to admit that. Now, my mother didn't comment on it, although she was commenting a lot about, you know, being a poor working woman. And I lived in a house of women who did nothing but complain day in and day out about everything in the white man's world, everything. Uh, my Aunt Mary, yeah, I told those people, I won't, you know, everybody was complaining about everything. And I lived in a neighborhood um, where, you know, we had gangs and, you know, poverty and working class, poor, poor working people, whatever. But I don't think there was any um, where, where I thought I had value on York Street, not until I went to the white schools and I saw that they could read by the first and second grade. We were reading, we could write, we could write poems by the second third grade. And my friends on the, in, this, in North Philly were barely able to read because the schools were overcrowded. Uh, they had uh, problems with heating systems, just basic problems. And by the time uh, we were in the second or third grade, there was a separation between me and all the people on the street mm. that I knew. Um, I, could, I could read, for example, because I was going to these white schools. I attributed that to being white, you know, white people. And white people liked me. They told me I didn't really look like a Black person. I could speak like them and I was acceptable in their world. And so for me, I went from being in the hood when I arrived on 21st in York to when I went to school, I was white, I was in fact Jewish. And I had to go back and forth every day like this. And so I didn't have anybody to tell me that I was, you know, like I was only good because I was acceptable to white people. But in the black community, I wasn't that acceptable because I wasn't dark enough where I lived. You had to be, when nobody interested in light-skinned black people where I grew up, okay? <laughs> I didn't look black enough, had to be fight. I had to act crazy. I had to walk around with a nasty ass attitude, you know? And then I had to go to white school and be white and cute and all that other stuff. So I didn't have a sense of where was I headed? What was my value? I just knew that I wanted to be among these white people. I didn't even have a goal. Mm. I just wanted to be in that school. And it was safe in school too. That's the other thing, no gang activity. Uh, you weren't, I mean, when I was 13, uh, I would say I was about 13 and, and these guys attempted to, were going to uh, rape me. They were lined up, you know, and they had me down on the couch. And so, but that, I, was, I was not raped because this one guy said, man, this ain't right. Uh, I lived in an area called the Avenue, Susquehanna Avenue gang. And uh, they said, this ain't right. This is an Avenue bitch. And so they said, oh, okay. We can't rape an Avenue bitch. <laughs> you know, so they let me go. Um, I was stomped by some boys in the street, you know. And so it was a lot of stuff like that. So I saw white 
people as having a safe and nice place to be, mm. but I could never tell who was I going to tell that to. Mm. I had no one to tell to. So I started thinking I was schizophrenic. So I never had a sense of being an okay person. And then here's my mother with all this. Well, you're the most beautiful. She never had a, you know, if I didn't want to go to college, she didn't care. I had to just get a job, make some money. And the biggest thing I had to do was to grow up and take care of her. That was, that was her goal with mm. me as far, as far as I was concerned. So I don't think that I was ever um, given a sense of myself as a person. I was extremely divided and thought I was schizophrenic. You know, the more I learned, I said, oh, I must be schizophrenic. I'm, I'm, and, and I had these terrible anxiety attacks. Um, and so I, I, I was not a very good, I'm not a good example of somebody that got encouraged to do anything other than I didn't know what and I because I loved North Philly I loved all the rock and roll coming out of Philadelphia and you know uh, the the uh, at the time you know um, all those DJs that would say you know like today all these people talk about rapping we rap we've been rapping all of our lives we black people we had a DJ and it's like Georgie Woods man with the goods coming to you from Philadelphia yeah yeah you know, Jocko <laughs> I'm Jocko on the scene with the record machine saying, who Papa do? How do you do? So I, I loved all of that. And I still do the music that I hear in my head and all that. It's all rock and roll music. I had a little girls group, but that was in the hood. But now I go over to the white side and I, I tried to become Jewish. I was wearing a mezuzah by the time I was 16. I went out with a Jewish boy. I thought I had died and gone to heaven. It I mean, so I was living in these two distinct worlds and I didn't belong in any of either of them, in my opinion. So I felt I didn't belong anywhere. And so when did you first feel seen? Um, wow, what a statement. I don't think anyone has ever asked me anything that heavy. Um, wow, I have to think about it. I think when I met this white man named Jay Kennedy, when I was in Los Angeles and I became a pink pussycat, which was like one step removed from being a hoe. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, a, a whale, a highly paid hoe, you know. And we were, it was a strip club and we were the waitresses and we were all these very revealing costumes and so forth. And so because I was one of the only, I was the only black when I got there. And so I was deemed exotic sort of, because you remember I wasn't really that black. <laughs> So um, I could, I was accepted in the white world, you know, and I was happy about that. So my whole songwriting career wasn't really a career goal. I just left Philadelphia. Mm. And when I got, and I got this job at the Pink Pussycat, which is a long story, but anyway, and this, and, and uh, I was always in the front because I was the only black, you see. So I always had good tables and also, and I made a lot of money by the time within a week I could, I had I could make enough money in two days to pay my rent, and I was making a lot of cash. You know, these white boys would come and fill your ass. They leave you a fifty dollar tip. You're talking about nineteen sixty five. You know, fifty dollar yeah. tip, and blah blah blah. And so one night, Frank Sinatra came in because all the strippers in that club and Johnny Carson was advertising this. And one night, and he was saying he thought it was so funny something called the Pink Pussycat, and all the strippers had names like Franny Sinatra, Samantha Davis, Joey Bishop. So it was the Rat Pack, but it was strippers that were named that. And they thought it was so funny that everybody was coming, all white men. 
I digress, white men. And one of the white groups that came in was the biggest one was Frank Sinatra with his entourage. Well, you can imagine everyone was in a tither. And at the end of the first show, um, I, I was right there near the Sinatra table. And uh, so somebody said that uh, they wanted to talk with me and they invited me to come to Frank Sinatra's house. I thought it was like I'd go there and serve cocktails and maybe pick up a $500 tip because that's how I was thinking at that time. And I had already done some pretty rough stuff. So I knew I had whatever they were going to ask me for. I was going to get the cash up front because that's what <laughs> I learned the hard way. <laughs> So I go into this house and here's this Frank Sinatra and this guy, Jack Entrotter, who owned the Sands Hotel and this other guy, Jay Kennedy. And that's it. This is not a party. It's just the six of us, Sinatra and some chick, Entrotter and his girlfriend and this guy, Kennedy and me. I get, oh, I get it now. So there needs to be some cash. I need to see some cash on the table. We can go there, but it's got to be cash. So ultimately it wasn't quite like that, but he uh, became my uh, lover and I became his mistress. And he was married, he lived in New York, but he was Frank Sinatra's best friend. And so I lived in this whole world of Frank Sinatra and so forth for two years. But during that two years, he absolutely worshiped me. Mm. And so when you ask me about being seen, I think that that's the first time I thought of myself as having any individualism like I wasn't I wasn't bifurcated I wasn't this this two to three people mm -hmm. uh, I was I was and I didn't understand it and so he started talking to me about Marxism Leninism he was really a Trotskyite then somebody said later he might have been in the CIA who knows who he was but he was very close to Frank Sinatra and he talked to me about black people and he talked to me about the March on Washington. I was like, what does that have to do with me? You know, I don't have anything to March on Washington. And about why, and then all of a sudden it was like, wait a minute, you mean all this stuff that I've been agonizing over has to do with racism in America? That this wasn't about something wrong with me? It was something wrong with the scheme of things? Mm. What? And now I, he thinks I'm, fabulous and he wants to take care of me but now I'm starting to look at things a little bit differently and then I run into these little girls and watch because this chick asked me to teach some piano and they're looking at me like I'm the hope of the world and I'm thinking you know, I, I don't even want to talk to you because I, I don't want to look at you because I, I know you and I know you little girls in Watts and Jordan Downs projects that you want me to teach you piano lessons I know you because I am you I am this little nigger girl that nobody gave a fuck about, that nobody ever cared that we lived or died, nobody, including our own fathers. I know you, I don't wanna look in your mirror, but I can't go back to this white man anymore because I've seen too much. So now I, I left him. And I, but I learned about Marxism, Lenin, I learned about systems, I learned about cultures, I learned about, because listening to him, I didn't have anything else to do but listen to what he had to say. <laughs> And he was very smart and he was very rich. And so I didn't have to work. So I just sat around writing songs and sitting at the piano and being this kept woman until that moment, that incredible moment when I saw those little girls in Watts. And um, I remember jumping rope and singing nasty rhymes and that my friend, that the only people that I really, that ever cared about were my friends on the streets of New York, New York or Philadelphia uh, on York Street. Uh, that's where York came from. 
uh, Barbara and Nita and Kathy, and we played rope, but all of them got pregnant or some terrible things happened to them. And all of my, my, the guys that I knew that I grew up with were either dead or in prison by 18. And, and it's like, oh, this wasn't, I couldn't escape. This was what was happening. This is why I've been unhappy all of my life. I didn't get that until Jay Kennedy. And then I couldn't be with him anymore after I saw those little girls. I can't help you with no goddamn piano lessons. You need something bigger than piano lessons. Trust me, I've learned that much. I spent more money on champagne than you making in a month to eat on. So I can't do it. And that's that was a big turning point. And that is, as you say, when I was seen and began to I, develop my own sense of what I needed to be doing in the world. Mm. That's mm. a heavy question. I appreciate it because I'm very emotional right now. I appreciate that story. That's that's beautiful. That's absolutely beautiful. And you know what it what it speaks to. You know because we know the rest of the story. <laughs> well, up until now, right? But it speaks to that prick, um, that catalyst. Um, the beginning of a life that had to be bigger than your life, a life that, and that, and that it was service, that it is service that allowed for an expanded version of Elaine Brown to come forth. Right. It, that was the, that was the, that was the needle prick. And so how did this tie into, or what was that timeline between that moment and then you showing up for your first Black Panther Party meeting? Wow, these are good questions. I appreciate it. Um, well, at that moment, it was, uh, you know, Watts uh, had erupted. Watts, California had erupted in 1965. So everybody, you know, the Watts riot, they call it. But, you know, people conscious and Black people called the Watts uprising. Mm. And, uh, you know, it was like all the others, you know, before over poverty, over racism you know some this was a cop got a shot a guy named leonard detweiler same thing as we're seeing today that's what triggered the watts uprising but uh in the case of in my case i was just floating along as i've mentioned and then these little girls and i left this white man and i immersed myself in being black quote unquote you know and so i, I went down this place called the black congress where there were these groups everything from the naacp to you know, um, maybe the SNCC organization had a representative, although they were mostly in the South. Um, and you had, you know, everybody was beginning to be militant. That was a big thing. And the word black power, the phrase black power had gotten out there, but it didn't resonate as to what it meant, but people liked the sound of it. You know, we all kind of like the sound, black power, you know, that kind of thing. And so I got involved there and uh, I, I, I wrote articles for a newspaper that they were producing as a collective of black organizations. And you had everything, welfare rights organization, you had a bunch of organizations. Community Alert Patrol used to follow the police with the cameras and you know stuff like this. So uh, in the course of that, um, that, organ that collective group of organizations, organization of organizations had a, a um, a uh, poetry reading mm -hmm. and uh, you know how it came to be like you have a poetry people say today I don't know what they say uh, when you have uh, people come out for a poetry reading maybe it's called a slam at one point I don't know what it's called today but back then we would say they would say uh, you know we had a poetry reading but it would be like everybody was speaking very militantly black I mean the languaging was already flipped around uh, this is that we can say 1960 
early 67, something like this. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and, and I had a poem because I, I was an alleged songwriter, remember? So I also wrote, <laughs> I wrote lyrics. And so I, I went to this thing. There was a lot of people there. Everybody was black. Everybody was tough. Everybody dashikis, you know, Afros, the whole piece. And uh, the doors opened and everybody had heard a rumor about, well, first when we had, before that, that this guy had come to talk to the group of the black Congress and I was representing the black student Alliance. I wasn't even a student, but anyway. And he wanted to talk about this incident in Oakland in 19, in, uh, in uh, October of 67. So we have to say this is after that, it's right around this period. And in October 67, this guy, Huey Newton and these black Panthers, had this confrontation with the police. He wanted to talk about a defense fund for Huey Newton, but we hadn't really heard about much about it, believe it or not, because there was no, you know, Instagram. Or not. So, and then, so we were all fascinated by it. And uh, this guy, Karenga, didn't want to hear about it. He's supposed to be the militant black with the US organization. And anyway, we outvoted him and we listened to these Black Panthers. And then there was a rumor that they were coming to LA. They were gonna come to Anise. They were like, there was this guns and we didn't, we didn't know what it really meant, but everybody was claiming to be militant at the time. And so in this poetry reading of a little bit later, uh, the doors swing open to this community room and this guy, Bunchy Carter walks in the room and he's got like 20 guys with him and they surround the wall, they stand up against the wall. And these are like, these guys got like a sawed off shotgun in a shoulder holster. And we're like, good God Almighty. We're like, what is this? And everybody kind of sat up and he announced that he was Bunchy Carter. And he was there to say that the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense was opening a chapter in Southern California. And that unfurled the photo, brother, the, the poster, the big poster of Huey with the, in the chair, the famous poster. This poster is going to be in every Black household because we're here to say that the pig cannot come into our communities anymore and rape our women and kill our men because what we do, brother, if they try to come in at once, now that there's a Black fan, we'll put his dick in the dirt. I said, good God Almighty. Woo! And then he said, blah, blah, blah. And so as you know, Dario, I read a piece of one of his other poems, but they said, he said, well, I wasn't invited here, but I have some poems too. So they said, and we used to say blow, like spit, spit a poem. We say blow, blow bunch. He said a poem called Nigger Town. I said black mother at the thing, but Nigger Town was a little rougher and said just a piece of it. He says, Nigger Town and Nigger Town and Nigger Town, the streets are made of mud infested with rat and bat and bug. In nigger town, in nigger town, the streets are made of brick. Ask any swinging dick that happens past. Why won't he get up off his big, fat, funky ass? In nigger town one day, this is a portion of it. I've, I've skipped something. In nigger town one day, four little children kneeled to pray in Jesus' name. Boom. Four little children gone, and Jesus never came. You say you're tired of all this shit, you sucker Paul, son of a bitch. If you was, you'd fall your mitt. Do something, nigga, if you only spit. The room was, all the air was out the room. And now you cannot ignore what you now have seen. I have seen, this guy was like, he was beautiful. He was like a God to me. Um, if I, if you look over my shoulder, there's mm-hmm. a painting of Bunchy. And um, now you playing now, you know that if you don't get down with this, Everything else is like some conversation and everybody knew it. 
everybody knew something big had just happened. Mm. So did I, but I we were, everybody was afraid. I was afraid. And then I met Eldridge Cleaver who came down there and he was literally big and bigger than life. And, uh, and I spent the night with Eldridge Cleaver and April the 4th, Dr. King, April the 4th, Dr. King was killed, 68. And then April the 6th, there was a big shootout in Oakland. Eldridge was shot and Bobby Hutton, the first Panther to fall, as we said, was killed. And I just said, that's it. So mm. I just, I walked into the Black Panther Party office in LA, which was housed in the Black Congress building at the time. And I said, um, you know, and when you signed up for the Black Panther Party, it wasn't like, well, I'm going to put in an hour and I'll come by and write some articles. This, this is a surrender of your whole life. Mm. The, commitment, the commitment was like that. At least we all knew that or believed that. And I know I did. This, this is it. There's nothing. I can't go back. I can't unknow what I now know. I can't have gone through North Philly and Jay Kennedy and being black and being white and those little girls and all that. I could not have done that and now be where I am and see Bunchy Carter putting it on the line saying, this is where we got to go. So I had to join the Black Panther Party. And how old were you <laughs> at this time? I was an old Panther, believe it or not. I was uh, 24, 25, like that. I was, well, Huey was a year older. Bobby Seale was a couple years older. Uh, but most of the people that joined the party around that time were like 19, 18. Uh, but I was uh... older to me, you know, in, in terms of them. But that was it. And I just said, this is it. This is my life. This is, this is, this is, I'm committing everything to this. You know, it's interesting when you, when you retell that story of Bunchy Carter coming in and unfurling this <laughs> banner of that right. you know iconic image of Huey P. Newton. And I know from a previous conversation, we spoke about the ways in which the Panthers really specifically used fashion and aesthetics like as a messaging platform and as a way to like recruit. Could you speak to the ways in which you all really organized and systematically understood the power of presentation? Right. And I, I think that a lot of that, um, uh, I can't even, I can't even say how it happened. I think Eldridge had an influence over, you know, the creating uh, changing the imagination. But I know that Huey, because the picture of Huey in the chair was something that Eldridge put together. Mm. Uh, Huey Newton would have never, never done that. Huey was a very handsome man in most of our opinions, but he never um, thought of himself that way. He never, you would never, if you met Huey, you would never think that this was a guy who was trading on his looks in any way. Um, Cause he was too tough and, and really, really would hurt people, you know, really could hurt you. He wasn't a big guy either, you know. Uh, he was not, I, I would say he was somewhere like five, eight or nine, like that. And, um, but he, he built his muscles up, but before that he wasn't that built, buffed up. But anyway, but he was very rough, very rough, very streetwise for a variety of reasons, but it's not the talk, conversation. And, um, um, but we always said that the beret was, you know, sort of the international symbol of a revolutionary liberation organizations, whether you were in, you know, like it, it from in Mozambique or in uh, certainly Che Guevara and Huey was a, a big, uh, like that was sort of the one 
individual that Huey identified strongly with. He had a big painting of Che Guevara in the place that he ultimately lived in. And it was on an easel. It was so big, you wouldn't believe it. So you walk in his house and you're going to see Che Guevara. Mm-hmm. And um, um, so the beret was sort of typical of South American and Latin American, whatever, and African and, you know, almost everywhere. And the black leather was very common among blacks in urban America. Remember, these guys were all first generation in the North. Everybody in Oakland is, is coming out of Louisiana in the second great migration, New Louisiana and Texas and Oklahoma, just like the first great migration, people going up to uh, Chicago or to Detroit or what have you. So the Huey Newtons of the world, this is the first, uh, he's the first generation to grow up in urban America and his family because they migrated from Louisiana. Uh, and, uh, and so the urban look became, remember that's how the whole thing was different under industrialization. Once we started getting jobs, they created ghettos, all that other stuff. And so you had a look and black leather was certainly the look of the hood. That was like, yeah, you know, got that leather brother, you know, all that. <laughs> so that was a part of it. And, um, and I don't know where the powder blue necessarily came from, but of course, once Huey went to, they, they weren't wearing uniforms before this, but once Huey went to uh, jail and this was not, you know, the cop kills the black man, I can't breathe, hands up, don't shoot. This was the black man is charged with killing the white cop and with his own gun, just as a note, footnote. <laughs> And he has become a hero. He's mm-hmm. not condemned and said, oh my God, cop killer. No, this is a guy, we think he killed him and we are elevating him because oppressor and oppressed, like you say, black and white, there's no distinction now. Now we're at, we're at the rawest point of everything. Here is this man who has already said off the pig, comes up with the word pig. And all of a sudden there are these rallies outside of the courthouse in Oakland where Huey is being held in the jail every day, free Huey or else the sky's the limit. And as you see that people start wearing this uniform, it's militant, it's military, it's, it's, and it's black and it's, uh, it's revolutionary. And so it, it, we, we began after a while, we learned that you know, everything was a tool for the struggle to educate our people to liberate. And so when people saw that outfit, they were like, good God almighty. There wasn't nothing you could say. And you see all these brothers and sisters lined up with that beret, with that black leather. And it's like, okay, there's a shift here. There's something bigger going on here that we ever even thought of. But this was not the SCLC. This was not <laughs> no people praying with the little suits on. This wasn't the Nation of Islam with the bow tie because they had a fashion statement, right? Mm-hmm. To wear the the thing, this wasn't even Snick with their overalls, Rat Brown with his overalls, you know, and, and Stokely because they wore the, you know, overalls. But when you see Rap and Stokely at the first Free Huey rally in February, in, uh, yeah, February of 68, yeah, February of 68, you see them all in black leather and uh, Rap Brown in a beret. They have now said, we, we are aligned with the Panther and that's, that's, that's the vanguard, that's the leading organization that we who are black militants, black power advocates, if you ain't with the Panther, free Huey means free 
everything. And, and, and if I can, because I, I don't know how much longer you, you have, uh, but um, I want to mention that Stokely Carmichael's Free Huey speech was recorded and put onto Black Forum Records. So you can ask me mm. about that. Oh, look, look, come on, come along, come on, come on with the segue. Come on, yeah, slide, I, I slide mean, I just, it just occurred to me. Because right? <laughs> we have gone through so much. Um, you know, we do want to talk about like Black Forum and this division of Motown that Barry Gordy set up um, for revolutionary voices and texts. Who would have thunk it, right? <laughs> I mean, do you know what I mean? And you were the only female on this um, division Thank of Motown. You. So explain to to us, like, what is Black Forum? How, after, after all of this, you did get your record. You did? Come on now. And, and, and now it's being re-released. Well, uh, you know, just so you know, very quickly, uh, in terms of my own history and music, uh, when I realized I wasn't really a great poet, um, I just said, well, I'll just put my poems to music. And that's how I sort of began to think of myself as a songwriter. Um, and so I did have a lot of songs that I had written and mostly, you know, love songs and sad ones at that, you know, about the loss of somebody. It's always very sad. Anyway, um, Finally, when I, I when I was in the Black Panther Party, um, some kind of way, I don't know whether Bunchy knew that I could sing, but it what when he and John Huggins were killed in January of 1969, uh, Bunchy's mother asked me to sing at his funeral. Mm. Um, and I had been there when they were killed. There's a long story about that. But the point is, I sang Precious Lord at the funeral, which is what she asked me to sing. And I was very honored by it. It was uh, so emotional. We had been in jail for like a week before this. It was just something else. So I sang this song and afterward, David Hilliard, who was really the, the act active leader of the party with Huey being in, in uh, jail and Bobby actually being uh, in jail on something by 69. I don't know whether it was the, uh, you know, the Chicago case or the, by the by, not by this time, New Haven, New Haven was coming up, but he had another, uh, some kind of an arrest. So anyway, David was the functioning leader of the Black Panther Party as a so-called chief of staff. And uh, David said, I hear that you write songs. And that was because I, somewhere in the interim, I used to sing at this place called the What's Happening uh, Coffee House. And there was a guy there, a jazz musician named Horace Tapscott. And I don't know, I just, I would sit there and play my little, sad, tragic little songs. And I wrote a song, for example, called The Very Black Man. Once I was in Watts during that period, I started writing songs about black people. And um, so I had this whole little group of songs at the time. And so David, he wanted to hear me. They found a place, somebody had a piano and I, after Bunchy's funeral and I went and sang those songs for David. He said, you need to make an album of those songs. Mm. Um, I want you to go out and make an album. Oh, that's all you want? Okay. And it's a paramilitary organization. So we didn't take this stuff lightly. Somebody told you to do something. It wasn't like, oh, well, there'd be a great idea. No, no, there's something you got to show. And I knew Horace Tapscott, who was a great jazz pianist. And he knew a guy at Blue Nose who knew a guy at something called Vault Records. And so I did an album of songs called Seize the Time. And Emery Douglas drew a big, fabulous um, cover with a big AK-47 on it. <laughs> so... And so Seize the Time became almost a classic. And, and now, even today, Dario, it is being 
I'm still getting a royalties from a record that was done in 1969. Nobody's ever probably heard of, but all around Europe and other places, um, it was then, uh, you know, many years ago, I say 15 years ago, Warner Brothers Music flipped it into a CD and then it went into iTunes and Spotify. So you can go online and listen to Seize the Time as we speak. Mm -hmm. uh, and then, so when Huey got out of prison and I met him, um, he said, um, I've listened to your music in my cell. It kept me alive, you know, and all of these sort of complimentary things. He said, I want you to do another album, but I want you to go to Motown because they're now in LA and it's a black company. I want you to go to Motown and record another album. Oh, that's all you want me to do is go to Motown and record an album. Okay. How do I do that? So I try, okay. Does anybody know anybody at Motown that from my last album, blah, blah, blah. In some kind of way, I ended up with some guy named Hal David or Hal Davis. And when he saw me there with my Black Panther bodyguards, he was like, oh shit, I don't need to talk. You need to talk to the head of the creative <laughs> department. And I said, well, where is he? By this time, I'm, you know, I'm halfway, you know, I'm in it now. And, and he says, it's a she, and she's right there and go down to her office. Here, let me take you down there. And they were in LA by, by this time. And they had just moved to LA on Sunset Boulevard. And uh, this woman, Suzanne DePass, uh, was uh, the vice president of, of Motown's creative. And she had, she had actually been the one who brought the Jackson 5 to Motown, who brought the Commodores to Motown. And so she was a big deal. And um, she made an appointment to see me. She wasn't like Hal, whatever his name was. And we had lunch like the next day. And we talked for five hours and we both wow. were suspicious of each other because I was like look at this bougie ass light-skinned broad with this you know she ain't gonna want to hear nothing I have to say and she was like is she gonna like eat raw meat or something <laughs> <I was> like, <laughs> but we identified with each other as single children of these families that these strange kind of environment that we grew up in and uh, she asked me to bring her some songs and I did and I played them and she said well I want to I want to record you we have a label called Black Forum and Barry created this label uh, because he was very close to and admired Dr. King. And Dr. King would be making all these speeches, but who was recording them for history? Nobody mm. other than CBS or somebody taking credit for, you know. And so he wanted Dr. King to have his own, but King was killed, of course, um, before he could do any much more. But so he, the first album on on Motown's new album, a label called Black Forum. What a great name when you think about it, uh, was uh, Dr. King. And then came Stokely Carmichael with Free Huey, an album on called Free Huey. And then came Langston Hughes reading his own poems. And then Amiri Baraka, formerly Leroy Jones reading poems and others. I can't tell you all of them because I can't really remember, but there were about 11, well, there were 10 albums already on Black Forum in this relatively short period of time. This is 1972 now. And so Suzanne puts me on it. I became the last person on the Black Forum label and the only woman and the only singer, the mm. only song, you know, the only musical album. So it's, you know, I didn't care. First of all, I had accomplished what I was asked to do. I had an album on Motown. Um, it wasn't, you know, Smokey Robinson, you know, Tamala or Gordy Records or whatever, but it was, it was, it was very, and it sort of became 
this kind of iconic thing that there was, exists this incredible period, this moment. And so recently, I will I say about two years ago, I was contacted by uh, Motown, which is now owned by Universal Music, uh, to, um, although they're sort of a subdivision of their own, to talk about resurrecting the Black Forum label, which I think would be fabulous, and using me and my old mm. song, you know, my old uh, last record as a kind of launching pad to create a space where Black and so many people have poems and have music that is relevant and not, never going to find a recording. You know, you can Absolutely. rap, you can do your little gangster rap all you want to, you know, but you, you, if you want to do something that may be different, you'd be self-recording CDs, you know, everybody got their little CD, but there's no big company that would be willing to put that kind of messaging, music, rap, poetry, whatever out there. So I think this is going to be a great idea to create a, a new forum for Black thought, Black mm -hmm. music, Black creativity in mm -hmm. sound and so forth. And so if I am very honored that they want to, you know, sort of use me, but I think it's just because I'm probably the last person alive <laughs> that was on the album. And they better hurry up because I am 78. And I keep telling them, you're wasting time right now. <laughs> Let me go. So hopefully um, I would like to myself record um, something for the new Black Forum label with maybe some young people um, or whatever, um, and just see what we can do. But hopefully Motown is, they're very geared up to do this. And I, I really hope that before the end of the year, um, they have, um, they will have, you know, organized the machinery to begin to relaunch this label, which I think is a fabulous label. I think it's a fabulous title even, don't you? I think it has, so much potential, like even as you were just describing the origins of it and then kind of bringing it back to the present and thinking about the myriad of ways in which we are consuming content um, and the ways in which this can be um, exhibited and executed, like my mind is racing, actually. So exactly. um, you could imagine the videos. And yeah, you, you know, you Elaine, you already know what you already know where I am, and and the then, shows. you know, and then also thinking about you know a, a level of decentralized blackness, right? Like that is just not an an African American or Black American centered concept, right? But like the invitation and the invocation of the Black lived experience around the world in Brazil, on the continent, you know, in UK, Arabian, and, everywhere. Yeah, right. so I think there's a, a lot of you know potential there, and so I'm I'm on the side of you, right? And one, partnering you with, you know, um, contemporary talent, but then also, you know, helping to create space for this type of messaging um, and space for this type of thought because it's there, right? We're having that thought in bookshops. We're having it on corners. So we're we're having it really, in DMs. Yeah, but it, it but, needs to be in that, in that medium where it can be hip and, and, and it can be out there for young people to have. Yeah. You know, like it can be encouraging. You don't have to sing a love song, or you don't have to sing or read, uh, you know, it's like the very fact that it was a brother that won the, what, American Idol, one of these things, who was a, uh, who, who was a, a poet. Yeah. A hip hop, I don't know if you know what, it's like in the last year or so. I have no idea I mean, what you're talking about. Over, yeah, but, <laughs> well, you know, like American Idol, one of these things, American Idol, <laughs> something like that. But he won 
over all these people that were singers and all this. And he was a spoken word artist, yeah. a black guy. Yeah. And, and, and had a very deep message that was really quite wonderful. Or that we have Amanda Gorman, who, by the way, yeah. was at the uh, at the Pierre Moss show that you and I where you and I met. And she came up to me after I read the Bunchy Carter poem and she's interested in collaborating, perhaps. And oh, so, that would be amazing. That's all kinds perfect. of things could come out of this, which would give a forum, a real yeah. place where you could, as you say, you could imagine film, you could imagine videos, film shows yeah. all around, you know, and then people would be tending to, instead of wanting to write the most gangster rap, yeah. you now may want to write the most political rap. Right. You know what I mean? Right. Words, it would yeah. create a cultural shift perhaps, or some kind. And a forum, right? Like the like right. the Greek agora, right? Which is a really exactly. a place of truth-telling, right? And that's, that's really what underroots it, right? There, exactly. In whichever exactly. medium you do it. So I, I know we've gone a bit over time, so I don't want to take up too much of your time. Well, I'm, I'm happy with this, and I appreciate all of your questions because they've been very, very thoughtful and intelligent. And it gives me an opportunity to, you know, to say the things I... I maybe have not said in other interviews. And so I, I really have appreciated this, truly. Oh, thank you. I've, Sister Elaine Brown, I can't even begin to tell you the level of excitement that started the moment that I met you, that continued when you agreed to be on this interview. And before I ask our last question, I just want to take this moment to acknowledge everything that you are everything that you have been, all of the incredible foundational um, work that you've set up for myself, for for black women around this country and beyond, um, that it is important. It is, it, and even though, you know, songwriting was the excuse, right, to get you to LA, it was actually the catalyst to begin this greater work. And I love that your story is one that is rooted in, self-reflection, um, you know, pivot, and that that pivot being service, right? That, 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 that understanding that it isn't just the I, it isn't just what I want, it isn't just, that that is a part of it, right? There isn't, there is something to being seen, but that is just to fuel the work that you're here to do. And so I just want to take this moment to acknowledge all of the work that you could and that you continue to do that we didn't even get to speak about, you know, your prison reform work, you know, the and organizations you founded. I'm building affordable housing in Oakland. I want to make note of Oakland and the World Enterprise and my nonprofit. We're building 79, 100% affordable housing units for low, very and very low income people, brand new. I'm a developer. It's a $70 million development, and we should be breaking ground in December. And I'm that's. Very and that and that's and that's the other part. Like, first of all, <laughs> congratulations. But two, you're seventy. I'm gonna just say it, you're seventy fucking eight, and you are still doing this work. And so you also define and I mean defy this concept in the white imagination that life for women somehow stops at forty, right? Like you right. you are a living example of of a full lived experience. And so I just want to thank you. But the last question before we wrap is what do you imagine for the future? Like given, given that you had the power to do anything, what is the future that you imagine? Well, um, well, I would imagine, I would, I would desire, uh, you know, obviously to, for there to be the kind of fundamental shift, but I know that 
um, even though we spoke with hubris back in the day, thinking the revolution in our lifetime, we say revolution in our lifetime, but, but that probably gave us a lot of energy thinking that any minute we were gonna change this big structure. Um, but I think that, you know, the pendulum is swinging our way, despite what we see in terms of these little, uh, you know, these little fascist uh, white people rising up with their guns and acting crazy and stuff because their days are numbered in terms of their numbers, right? Um, but I think that if, um, I think there is a basic humanity that everybody has connected to. And the more uh, we have uh, some connectivity through technology, we'll be able to um, see that we have to make some changes. It's not going to be having Kamala Harris put on some candy cloth and talk about the George Floyd. Yes, that's right. Kneeling with uh, Nancy Pelosi talking about the George Floyd police reform bill or whatever that irrelevant uh, conversation is, because it's not going to happen. Uh, I think that, you know, young people, I'm always hopeful about young people. And I think young black people are looking for some way to address this, the magnitude of what is overwhelming us is, is there now. When I was in New York with you, uh, New York being such, a, you know, so, so dense and, you know, all these big buildings and everything in Manhattan and everything. And you look at that and you go, good God almighty, how the hell am I going to address all of these institutional, long-standing Wall Street, slavery and Wall Street, blah, blah. And, and it sort of looks defeating, but I'll say this in, in closing, you know, my friend, formerly known as H. Rap Brown, uh, Jamil Alamin, or Imam Jamil Abdullah Alamin, uh, he, when I visited him in prison in Colorado and the uh, federal supermax prison, and there he was, this tall, incredible, powerful man, and uh, behind the bars, behind the glass, and we were there, and, we, and I said to him, you know, I, I feel that, um, he asked me how I was doing and I'm thinking, how am I doing? You're the one underneath the mountain in this terrible prison. Um, I'm gonna get to walk out, you know? And uh, he said, I said, well, I'm, I'm all right, but I'm, I feel that I've failed my boy that's been in prison for 24 years now. And then it was, you know, however many years it was then. Mm. Uh, a boy that I wrote a book about called Michael Lewis. Uh, I call him a boy, he's 13 years old when he was arrested and tried as an adult for murder and sentenced to life in prison where he remains now at 38 years old. But I've been with him every step of the way and we, we're gonna get him out. It's a long story. But anyway, and I said to Jamil, um, I said, um, I failed this boy. I told him that he had to do one thing and that was to live and he's done his part. And my job was to get him out and I failed him. And he said, well, um, let me ask you this question. He said, first of all, as a Muslim, I say that, you know, Allah is in charge. So you can't fail him because you ain't in charge. You know, number one, I was like, what? I'm not in charge. But anyway, um, secondly, I'm saying, he said to me that, um, did you put him in, in jail, in prison? I said, well, of course not. And he said, well, what makes you think you are going to be the one to get him out? You've been up against an entire system that created all these things that put young black men in Georgia. I formed an organization around Mothers Advocating Juvenile Justice around this issue of young blacks being uh, adjudicated as, as adults under the uh, crime uh, three strikes crime bill and blah, blah. And I said, well, he said, well, if you didn't put him in prison and a whole system was there coming out of hundreds of years of this and that, what makes you think you <laughs> have the power to handle that by yourself? I said, well, I thought I was halfway bad, you know, and I could handle this one little old case here. 
He said, but here's the thing, sister. You are doing what you have to do and you have to keep on because this almost makes me cry. And so this is my thought for the future. The, it is only inevitable that the pendulum will swing our way. And when it does, you'll be there and you'll have something already in place. And so if it doesn't succeed now and you don't have instant success, you have to know that every day you got to keep on pushing, keep on doing what you're doing, because it's inevitable that we will win. The world cannot continue like this or else it will self-explode. Then it won't matter. So I have absolute hope. And so I quote Mao at the end of this. And I said this to a lot of the young people I met there at the Pierre Moss a show, which was just fabulous in terms of the young people that I saw there. And they came up to me. A lot of people came up to me afterward. And I said, you know, uh, as Mao said, I look at you and I say, you young people, uh, because Mao was a poet also, full of vim and vigor, you are like the sun at eight or nine in the morning. In other words, that's where our hope is for the day. The sun at eight or nine is, 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 is up and it's ready and the day is before us. And so I feel like the day is before us. And I just hope that I can leave one more footprint for somebody to grab and maybe use for the continuum of life until we are in fact free, all of us. Amen, amen. All power to the people. Right, okay. All power to the people. Have a beautiful afternoon. Thank you again so oh, much. Oh, Daria, well, I appreciate you. I had no idea about this, this, you are, first of all, your incredible intelligence and your ability to frame all of this. This is great. Uh, and then your musical talent, which we should discuss offline. <laughs> I love to. Now that I have your phone number, I may call you if it's all right with you. Of course. Uh, you know, I had such a great experience there and I was so not wanting to go. I'm like a fashion show. You got to be kidding. <laughs> I don't know if they told you. I was like, Shh, I don't want anything to do with a fashion show. Yeah. That's not me. <laughs> but, okay. you know turned out to be a very powerful experience for me because it certainly was not a fashion show. Yeah, it is. It is. It is. And the work that it, it's, it's fully aligned with the work that you do, which is, is beyond those buildings and those institutions that, that, that seem intimidating. It's, it's spirit work, right? And that is what Martin Luther King says when he speaks about the moral arc of the universe being That's long. Right but a bending towards justice, right? And so we have to assume that that, yeah. that and, and if we don't do that, then we, then we give up and we surrender to um, what is really truly evil. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's not a word I often use, uh, 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 but, but, but there is so much evil. If we are still a barbaric, I'm talking about we human beings, we have developed all this stuff, but yet um, our, our moral center is barbaric. We're still ready to eat each other. And um, we're not ready to live together in, in any kind of harmony with each other and with nature. And that was what the Black Panther Party really was talking about, to harmonize our lives with each other and also with nature, which nobody realized what environmentalists we were, but that's another conversation. Well, that just means we'll have to have another conversation. Once, once you release uh, your, your, your new album on Black Forum, we'll have to bring yeah. you back. So you, you encourage it to be done now. <laughs> I'll, 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 I gotta I'll, do it. I'll do. I'll. I'll do what I can. You know, we fight against systems. You know, but I'll. I'll do what I can on my. On my All end. right. Well, I appreciate you of so course. much, and I appreciate the opportunity to be a part of this podcast. And um, you know, I look forward to our continuing to do good work toward 
you know, all of, all of humanity and, and black people certainly because we have to always remember ourselves. But at the same time, we are part of the larger human platform and, and, and the universe. And Absolutely. we haven't even gotten a chance to look beyond this planet because we're so stuck in this day-to-day -day grind of mistreating each other, having not the things that we need and all of that. But if we were ever to accomplish that, then we might find out what's going on with the rest of the universe that we know so little about. Yeah, yeah. The, the dissolution of the illusion is right. what we're after. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. I, I'm right, ending it. <laughs> take, care. take care. Thank you so much. Thank you. Have a wonderful rest of the day. Okay, take care. Bye. Bye. Well, I mean, what do I say? Elaine still got it. Thank you all so much for tuning in. And trust me, this is an episode you will want to bookmark. Which was your favorite part? I mean, let us know over on Instagram at Black Imagination. And be sure to share this with a friend or a family member you think needs a little bit of Elaine's wit in their life. Be sure to subscribe wherever you receive your podcast. And remember... There's no end to the fight for liberation. But like Martin said, the moral arc of the universe is long, but it bends towards justice. Stay curious and keep dreaming. <laughs>